Hear now the word of our Lord. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place, and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Then Jesus replied, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves and he gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied and the disciples picked up 12 baskets full of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those that ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. This is the word of God. May it find its way into our hearts and lives this morning by the power of His Holy Spirit. Amen. So um, when I was a kid, I used to uh, hate going to the Louisville Opera House. Um, I lived in northern Kentucky and um, in a small farming community, a lot like this. And uh, sometimes for, uh, uh, to, uh, it was fun to go out and go to the big city we go to Louisville, and but I knew when we were going to the opera house, it usually meant we were going to have to watch a musical, uh, because my mom really loved musicals, and so we'd see the fame of the opera and, and things like that. The worst was the first time I went, I went and saw the the Secret Garden, and uh, we watched the Secret Garden, and I honestly I thought I was being punished. <laughs> I like, I was racking my brain trying to figure out what I'd done to deserve this kind of torment. The Secret Garden is like three hours of people in Victorian costumes singing about weeding and, and cholera. And so uh, it's, it, it's just, it's torment for a nine-year-old boy. And I remember just uh, the curtain closing, the lights going up, and feeling like a bird freed from the cage. And I was so happy, so excited we went went out to the lobby, and uh, we all used the restrooms, and then my parents turned around, and we went back in. <laughs> so why are we going back in? I think it was intermission. <laughs> I still had like an hour and a half to go of the secret garden. But one night, I was really excited to go to the Louisville Opera House, and the reason was we were going to see none other than the magician David Copperfield. Anyone ever heard of David Copperfield? All right, so at that time, he was considered like the greatest magician in the world. Um, he once, in the middle of an act, teleported to Hawaii and back. Um, he, uh, he walked through the Great Wall of China, like through the wall. Uh, that was pretty cool. He made the Statue of Liberty disappear, right? And so David Copperfield did like big tricks, big things. And so as, as a 10-year-old boy to go see David Copperfield was a pretty big deal. And that night, he was doing one of his biggest tricks of all. That night, he was flying, right? He was going to fly right there in front of all of us. 
and he did it. And it was pretty incredible, right? And I know what you're thinking, wires, right? He, he's up on wires. Well, they were, like, they were like twirling these flaming hoops around him to show that there were no wires. They were, you know, um, uh, it was a really cool trick. And he was just gliding wherever he wanted to go, like Peter Pan, just up and down, zigzagging. It was really neat. Um, but as fun as that was, the most fun part was at Olive Garden afterwards. Everyone was sitting around the table trying to figure out how he did it, right? And everyone had their own little theories, right? Um, someone said, you know, what I'll bet it is, is he's got these fans that are hidden on the stage, big, huge fans that, that, that the audience can't see, and then the fans would, like, blow him up into the air. Um, that's not a really good theory because, like, he could control it way better than just being thrown around by fans. Uh, uh, you know, some people have more complicated theories that involve, like, um, complex, you know, like wires and trampolines and mirrors. Um, my favorite theory um, to this day, um, I still giggle when I think about it, magnetic underwear. <laughs> Got to think about that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure how David Copperfield did it, but that's the fun, isn't it, to try and figure out how the magician does his trick, right? Um, and so that's the allure of magic. We, uh, we like to watch the magician closely, right? Trying, uh, trying, every time he tries to misdirect us, we, we, we don't move our eyes. We watch the hands, make sure there's no funny business going on, right? That's the fun. If, if, uh, if someone shows you a magic trick, right, the first thing you'll say is, wow, and then do it again, <laughs> right? This time you're going to pay attention. You're going to see what's going on. You're going to try and, try and figure out what the hands are doing. Well, this morning's scripture lesson, Jesus speaking of the 5,000, offers us a similar kind of mystery. Now, it's not a magic trick. It's a miracle. There's no... Uh, mirrors, there's no smoke, there's no magnetic underwear. It's just the power of God, right? But this is the only miracle to appear in all four Gospels, and none of the four Gospel writers ever tell us when the miracle actually happens. When do these, uh, these, these five loaves of bread and these two fish get multiplied? All we know is at the beginning of the miracle, there's five bread and two loaves, five loaves of bread and two fish, and then at the end of the miracle, there's twelve baskets full left over. It never tells us when the thing happens. And so this morning, I want us to read it closely. I want us to pay attention. Jesus is going to do it again, and we're going to watch the hands, okay? And we're going to try and figure out how this miracle works. So let's keep an eye on the hands together. Um, the first thing I see when I look at this miracle, okay, um, is it begins with compassion. It begins with compassion. See, Jesus had withdrawn to a quiet place, right? Um, and it says, it says when he heard that this had happened, he, here's what he heard that had happened. He heard that his mentor, his cousin... One of his best friends 
John the Baptist was just beheaded by King Herod. And so he wanted to go be alone, right? Part of him was grieving the loss of, of, of this dear friend of his. The other part of him was probably really scared. If, uh, if John the Baptist can be beheaded, maybe so can I. And so Jesus wants to just go be alone. And so he sets off in a boat. And when he gets to the other side, he's not alone. People are waiting for him. Like 5,000 men and their wives and their children, right, are all waiting for him on the other side. And it says Jesus looked at them and he had compassion. The Gospel of Mark says he looked at them and they were like sheep without a shepherd, right? And he has compassion. He's like, these people are leaderless. They need me. And so it says he healed their sick. When Jesus saw these people, he had compassion for them. He was moved. He's, he, he saw that they were sick, that they needed a leaguer, that they were tired, and he was moved. See, Jesus looked at these people. He looked at these crowds, and he saw people to be redeemed. But the disciples looked at them, and they saw problems to make go away, right? The disciples is getting late. Jesus, who all he wants to do is be alone. He's in the crowd. He's giving and giving and giving and giving for hours. It starts to get late, and the disciples say, gosh, all these people out there, they're going to start getting hungry, and that's going to be our problem. So Jesus, why don't you send them away, right? Send them to the nearby villages, and they can get some food. That is a cop-out and a sham, okay? The nearby villages probably have 300, 600, the large ones maybe 900 members of the whole village, right? They don't have a Walmart. They don't have a grocery store, right? These nearby villages can't, can't, handle the need the disciples are planning on sending their way, right? These, these uh, let's conservatively, conservatively say 5,000 people, wives, maybe one kid apiece, right? We're talking about 1,500 people, right? And they want to send them to these 600-person uh, villages and have them feed them, Right? The disciples aren't worried about, about these people being fed. They're worried about these people getting out of their faces, right? So that it's not their problem anymore. They're, they're wanting to send them away. Um, uh, the uh, last church I worked at in North Carolina, um, we uh, had a lot of people who would come to the church um, needing, wanting food, assistant with assistance with their utility bill, um, the church kind of had it down to a science. Um, what they do, they have this door that stayed locked, and it had this little intercom on it. And below the intercom, it says, um, if you need any assistance, go to, and it had the address of a place called Christ Can. It's where the church sent their money every month, and that was where you could go to get food. 
and people would, it was like digging into Emerald City, right? Uh, people would press the buzzer on the door. Um, the secretary would ask them to state their business. And if they felt like they had any business being in the church, they would buzz them through. Right? They might as well have said, go to a nearby village. Right? There's nothing for you here. This is our first instinct when we're confronted with a problem we can't solve. Send them away. Make that someone else's problem. Maybe the nearby church can handle them. But Jesus sees through all that. He says, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. You give them something. And so we have to, as disciples, decide how we're going to respond to that. One of the things we talked about um, last week when we talked about our dreams for the community was meeting some of the community's needs. And so we're going to have to decide how we respond to that. What does our community need and how are we going to meet it? Um, Henry, Henry Nowing is, uh, is um, I think, one of the great devotional writers of the 21st century. Um, Life of the Beloved, um, uh, The Wounded Healer. Um, these, are, uh, these are books that have brought me um, joy and comfort in my Christian walk. Um, this is uh, Henry Nowen's, uh, I guess, it's not his day job. Um, his day job um, for, uh, for 30, 40 years um, was working um, with the mentally disabled um, in a small community for the mentally disabled. And, uh, and the people he worked with couldn't even read his books, right? They couldn't even read his books. Henry Nowen says, Our calling is where our deepest passion and the world's deepest hunger meet. Where our deepest passion and the world's deepest hunger meet. That's what it means to have compassion. And that's where the miracle starts. And then the next thing we see here, the disciples say, We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish. Then he ans- they answered, Then he said, Bring them here to me. The next thing that has to happen is that we offer what little we have. See, I like the way the New Revised Standard Version puts it. The New Revised Standard Version says, The disciples say, We have nothing but these five loaves of bread and two fish. We have nothing but. But, right? How often do we let our nothing buts determine what is possible? Right? It's easy to look around and say, we've got nothing here but this. Right? It's easy to let our lack of resources determine what we think is possible. You know, I have nothing but 
a nasally voice and a speech impediment. And God calls me to preach. I don't know whether that's kind of, some kind of joke or not, but here we are. And I have to give God what I have. We can look at our own lives and see what some of those nothing buts are. You know? Um, Brooke may not consider herself the greatest piano player slash singer, but I asked her to help, and she's here, and she's making a difference, right? She got her nothing but over here, <laughs> right? All of us need to get our nothing buts in gear, too. We need to give what we have. Um, I think of this uh, story about a... Uh, uh, a, a man uh, who owned a music shop around the turn of the century in London. His name was Mr. Betts. And this is a true story. Mr. Betts was locking up his music shop one night um, when this sort of a bedraggled old man showed up. And he had a violin tucked under, under his arm. And Mr. Betts could look at the old man and see, um, you know, he was soaked with rain. Um, he looked like he hadn't eaten in days. And the man uh, held up his violin and said, uh, said, you know, would you like to buy this violin from me? Now, Mr. Betts actually had several violins in the store. He really didn't need a violin, um, but, he said, but he could see the man was in need. And so he said, um, could I have that uh, violin uh, from you for, uh, for about $5? And, um, and the man was overjoyed. He said, sure. Uh, keep in mind, this is the turn of the century. Five dollars is a little more, right? And he hands the man five dollars and uh, takes the violin. Well, Mr. Betts uh, picks up the violin and uh, puts it under his chin and starts to play it. And notices it has this beautiful, deep, mellow sound. And uh, he's actually kind of surprised by it. And he picks up the violin and looks in the sound hall, in, in the sound hole, and he sees something extraordinary. It says, Antonio Stradivari, 1704. Mr. Betts was holding a Stradivarius violin. These things on auction go for $16 million, right? This is a big prize. And immediately he puts the violin down. He runs out in the street, uh, you know, intending to pay the beggar more for the violin. But he was gone. I think of this story because... How we undervalue what we have. How we undervalue what God has given us, the gifts he's placed in our care. And so we let our nothing buts determine what is possible. But the next thing I think uh, we need to see is that we put it in Jesus' hands. We take... What little we have, and we put it in Jesus' hands. Remember I told you, watch the hands. Jesus, uh, here in uh, verse 18, he says, Bring them here to me. Then he directs the people to sit down on the grass. And then taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Right? Jesus takes what we give him, and he puts it in his hands, and he blesses them. You know, we went through a lot of trouble to get the uh, elements consecrated for this morning for communion. Um, 
uh, being just a lowly supply pastor, I cannot consecrate the elements myself. And so we, uh, I had to get them early, um, uh, take them to an ordained minister so he could pray over them. And he even, uh, he even gave me this uh, little card, right? I guess in case I get pulled over by the police and they want to know who's consecrating the elements, right? And it says that uh, Pastor Dale Gilbert consecrated the elements on August 4, 2017, and then he signed it in case, uh, in case anyone ever wonders, right? You might think that's a little silly. In a way it is, but you see, we Methodists have kind of a conviction about this, that it matters whose hands are on the bread and the wine. It matters. And for the disciples, it matters whose hands are blessing their efforts. It matters that it's Jesus' hands. Because Jesus' hands, when they bless what we do, watch out. Watch the hands, all right? We're going to continue right here. So, uh, Jesus says, bring them to me. He directs the people. They sit down in the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven. He gives thanks. He breaks the loaves. He gives them to his disciples. And the disciples gave them to the pizza, to the people. I'm hungry for pizza. They gave them to the people. And they all ate and were satisfied. Probably in your Bible, I know it does in my Bible, every Bible... Um, just about, it has a little heading above this story that says, Jesus feeds the 5,000. But that's not right. Watch the hands. Who's feeding the 5,000? It's the disciples. The disciples feed the 5,000. Jesus feeds the 12, then the 12 feed the people. You see, we have this uh, this misconception about the Gospels, that the disciples were just these people, like they were just like the fanboys that followed Jesus around, and every time Jesus performed a miracle, they all clapped, right? And that the disciples were like Jesus' biggest fan club, following him from, uh, from, from place to place, watching him perform miracles. That's not how it worked. When Jesus called the disciples, he said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Right? He said, I'm calling you to do the things I do. Jesus gave the disciples the authority to cast out demons, to heal the sick, to proclaim the good news. He trained them, he equipped them, then he sent them out to do that. Right? The disciples were not passive watchers. They were expected to do the things that Jesus did, to walk on water. You see, watch the hands. Jesus, we, our hands offer what we have. Our hands offer. Jesus' hands bless. And then our hands serve. That's where the miracle happens. Our hands offer. Jesus' hands bless. And our hands serve. That's how the miracle happens. 
When our lives get into this rhythm of humility, this rhythm of compassion, this rhythm of self-sacrificial love, amazing things can happen. Suddenly, our hands become Christ's hands. Christ's hands become our hands. And we can move mountains. We can walk on water. We can even pray in the valley of the shadow of death because we know that Jesus is working in us and through us. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Because our hands offer what little we have in compassion. His hands serve, break, and bless. And our hands serve. Um, Every time we take communion, and I'm almost done, I promise. Colton's getting restless. Uh, every uh, Every time we take communion, I'm reminded of a story. It was about um, a man who falls asleep one night while praying. And he has this dream. An angel visits him in the dream and says, Where do you want to go? I'll take you anywhere. Right? And the man says to the angel, I've always wanted to see hell. And I've always wanted to see heaven. Can you show me? And so they zigzag through the cosmos, you know, around moons and through stars, Right? And they land in this place, and it's this great big banquet hall, and there's this great big table. And on the table are, like, all the most wonderful foods you can imagine. But the people sitting around the table are all sickly and pale and thin. They look like they haven't eaten in weeks, maybe years. They're wasting away. And the man looks closer, and he sees that that everyone in the table is chained to their chairs. And he looks even closer and sees that everyone at the table has these steel rods that are, that are, uh, that are chained to their arms. And see, these people can reach out in front of them and get the food, but they can't get the food to their mouths. And so these people at this table, for all eternity, you know, have, have this food just a couple of feet away from them. And they can never get the food to their mouths. This, said the angel, is hell. The man says, I can't bear to see this any longer. Take me away. So they zigzag through the stars, go around moons. And they land in another place. And it's very similar. It's the same banquet room with the the same uh, table. The same most wonderful foods all over the table. And these people are fat and happy and laughing and enjoying life. But the man looks closer and sees that these people too are chained to these chairs. And he looks closer and sees these people too have these rods that are chained to their arms. But in this room, these people are picking up the food in front of them and they're serving their neighbor. This, said the angel, is heaven. Our hands offer. Jesus' hands bless. Our hands serve. Our hands offer. Jesus' hands bless. Our hands serve. You want to see heaven on earth? You want to witness a miracle? Our hands offer. Jesus' hands bless, our hands serve. That's what miracles are made of.
At least that's what I believe. It could be magnetic underwear. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.